You're listening to Beat Autoimmune and Thrive, the podcast all about reversing and preventing autoimmune conditions so you can live your most vibrant life as soon as possible. We talk about autoimmune root causes, actionable solutions, and inspirational healing stories. I'm Palmer Kippola, and I used to have MS. Today, I'm an author, a speaker, a functional medicine certified health coach, a pickleball player, and nature lover who's helped thousands of people reclaim their health and their best lives. Let's dive into this episode. Hello, everyone. I am delighted to be here today with Dr. Nick Hedberg. Dr. Hedberg is a functional medicine expert. He's a board-certified chiropractic internist. He's board-certified in nutrition by the American Clinical Board of Nutrition. He's an herbal medicine fellow and the author of The Complete Thyroid Health and Diet Guide. He's also the founder of the Immune Restoration Center in Asheville, North Carolina, where he sees people all over the world via telehealth. So I am just absolutely delighted to be here with you, Dr. Hedberg. I listen to you on your podcast, and I have for years, and I love the combination of science and you dig deep into the science of why things happen. And you also break it down to make it easy for people to understand those connections between autoimmunity and infection. And we really can't separate those two. So I'm thrilled that you're here because it's really not a moment too soon. And so welcome. Great. Well, yeah, thanks for having me, Palmer. Looking forward to this. Absolutely. Positively. And I know that in your practice, you see a lot of different types of autoimmunity, probably predominantly Hashimoto's, which is the number one autoimmune condition, but other things as well, and including gut health, which we both know is central to the development. And then of course, the reversal of autoimmunity. So I love that you have such a broad perspective and approach it from a functional medicine perspective. Why don't we start at the beginning? I'd love to hear your thoughts on why you believe autoimmunity is on the rise today. Right. Well, there's uh, multiple reasons. You know, the first one that stands out is insulin resistance. And that's another term for that is dysglycemia. So the body is having a difficult time dealing with blood sugar and with our rising rates of obesity. I think it's around 42, 43% of Americans now are obese and 75% are overweight. And so right off the bat, you have three quarters of the population is insulin resistant. Insulin resistance drives autoimmunity. So that's, you know, one of the first things. And then of course there's increases in environmental toxins. Uh, Food sensitivities are increasing. Um, detoxification issues, hormones with things like xenoestrogens and, you know, with obesity and, and being overweight and being inflamed, you're going to have increases in estrogen levels in uh, men and women. And then there's a, a surprising one that a lot of people overlook, which is oxygen deficits. And it's up to it's, it's probably more than this, but it's around 22 million Americans have sleep apnea, and uh, that's also increasing. And so if you have hypoxia for eight hours out of a 24-hour period every day because of apnea, oxygen deficits also drive autoimmunity. 
And, uh, you know, now with the pandemic and increasing stress levels, we're also a more isolated society. So we have increases in loneliness and social isolation, both of which drive inflammation and autoimmunity. Of course, Americans, you know, we work more than anyone. We have a very high stress lifestyle and we know stress chemistry drives inflammation and autoimmunity. So there's, there's a lot of factors there. I mean, we're as homo sapiens, we're really living out of our element. We're Mm -hmm. supposed to be in tribes of about a hundred to 150 people with a strong support system. And we just don't really have that anymore. And then also, you know, just one of the other things that's overlooked is uh, childhood trauma and adverse childhood experiences. These are, these are major drivers of autoimmunity as well. And the whole, you know, mental health, psychoneuroimmunology aspect is, is another aspect that, that I think is often overlooked as well. And all of those issues, you know, you can't really separate the mind from the body. There's the term mind body, but it's, it's really inseparable. And so all of those psychological issues that we carry with us from childhood into adulthood, these are also drivers of stress chemistry and the, and also drivers of autoimmunity. So those are some of the the big overreaching, you know, causes and, and explanations of why autoimmunity keeps rising. Uh, wonderful. It sounds like a really long list of things and it sounds kind of dire to think about this, but it's a really important place to set the context for this discussion because there is so much that people can do about these things. And I think sometimes we can feel really defeated that you know, any one of these things sounds almost insurmountable. All of the environmental toxins, this soup that we live in, and you know, all of this. But you brought up one that I, I just hadn't heard that direct connection between sleep apnea and autoimmunity. And I think that is you are so spot on to that. And that makes me also think about oral health that, you know, we we think about disease starting maybe not in the gut, but well, it is part of the gut, right? The mouth. This mm-hmm. is this may be, in fact, one of the places that people should really consider paying more attention to. Would you agree? Oh, definitely. Yeah, the oral microbiome and uh, sleep, sleeping with the mouth open has a has a devastating effect on the oral microbiome. <sighs> And uh, yeah, that's that's another big factor. Like you said, it is it is essentially part of the gut. It's it's the gateway to the gut, and so that's something that needs to be looked at in in detail. Yeah, and as we get into the discussion about infections, um, you know, I suffered from cavitations in all four wisdom teeth area, and um, when I had those taken care of surgically and uh, addressed with ozone and PRP, I really felt recovery in my immune system. I mean, as a game changer. And just another point on the sleep apnea, you know, I don't know if you believe that people should go out and get a sleep study done if they think they might be sleeping with their mouth open. But one thing that I have found super simple that I've been doing for the past four or five years is taping my mouth shut at night when I sleep. Mm-hmm. Any yes. thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I do that as well, and I, I recommend it. 
I like the Nexcare uh, sensitive skin tape. You can get that very cheap on, on Amazon. And yeah, you, you tape the mouth shut and that will mostly force you to breathe through your nose while you sleep. And that's a very easy and expensive way to begin um, reversing any of those oxygen deficits that you may have. And also it'll improve the oral microbiome. Mm. Wonderful. So if, if you have a partner who, who tells you you're, you snore, like if you don't know if you're uh, a mouth breather at night, one um, thing that you could pay attention to is how dry is your mouth, right? Mm-hmm. If you're alone um, and maybe consider looking into that next care sensitive skin tape. I, I think it's a game changer. Personally, I felt a big difference in, in doing that. So thank you for bringing all of those things up. And we're going to get into the solutions for these things. But why don't we start again, kind of at the top of the heap and explain to us the basic immunology of autoimmunity, if you will. Right. I've, I've thought of the, you know, the best way to explain this to, you know, people who don't have significant education in, in immunology. And so basically, there, there's a few cells, immune cells in your body. Uh, the first one being a Th1 cell. It's a T helper one cell. These were once thought to be drivers of autoimmunity. Now we know that they're not. Uh, the cells that are the real drivers of autoimmunity are Th17 cells. And then the Th2 cells or T helper two cells. Those are also factored into autoimmunity. And then you have regulatory T cells. So those are the big four. There's other uh, T cells as T helper cells as well, but those are the big four to be thinking about. So TH17 cells, these drive autoimmunity. And so a few important things to understand. The first is that TH1 cells inhibit TH17 cells. And so if you have a strong TH1 system, then you'll have a good ability to inhibit these TH17 cells. Hmm. And so a couple of the things that dampen TH1 cells are stress. That's really the big one. So as I mentioned before, stress chemistry knocks out TH1 cells and you have less inhibition of TH17. And then inflammation also drives down TH1 cells. Now Now the issue here is that TH1 cells are the most important cells for fighting infections and the main infections being bacteria and viruses. And if your TH1 system is low, you're more likely to get infections and you're more likely likely to have chronic infections. So one of the things you could ask yourself is, are you the person who always gets sick if there's a cold or, or a flu going around? that can indicate a compromised TH1 status and that will drive autoimmunity. And then the other big cell are the, these are the TH2 cells. And these are involved in things like asthma and allergies and issues with the cavities of the body. So the sinuses, the lungs, the entire intestinal tract, the urinary tract, the vagina, any of those cavities in the body are involved with TH2. Now, TH2 cells actually drive TH17. So if you have anything that is driving TH2 
It's going to drive TH17 cells and therefore drive autoimmunity. Mm. So if you have asthma, allergies, and if you have anything going on in those body cavities, so let's say you have a sinus infection or an infection in the gut, anything in the gut that could be driving that TH2 status is going to drive uh, those TH17 cells. And so if you have like gut dysbiosis, this is where the gut comes into play as such a big factor. Gut dysbiosis is going to drive TH2 cells, and that's going to drive TH17 and therefore drive autoimmunity. So those are kind of the, the main T helper cells that are involved in autoimmunity. The regulatory T cells that I mentioned, the regulatory T cells, they just dampen all of the cells. So they dampen TH1, they dampen TH17, and they dampen TH2. This is why vitamin D, and we'll talk a little bit later about some of the myths out there, but this is why vitamin D works well for most people with autoimmunity. And that's because it dampens uh, TH7 T cells, TH17 cells, which are the drivers of autoimmunity. So that's really the, the basics of, of how it works and, and how it happens and, and what we know now about what drives autoimmunity. That is fascinating. And you're the first person that I've heard describe that so beautifully. And so are people like the average person is probably a woman in childbearing years, 35 to 55 is probably the sweet spot for autoimmunity. Would, would you agree that that's mm-hmm. like the, the typical? And yes. so a lot of stress involved, um, you know, and, and she knows that. Is she going to, based on what you just said, pay attention to those things like, do I have asthma? Do I have anything going on like a sinus infection? Am I always getting sick? Are we starting with those as clues that might be indicative that you could be going down a bad path? So if you don't already have an autoimmune condition per se, but maybe you have asthma, which is autoimmune as I understand it. But if you have allergies or you always get sick, are are those signs that you already have some imbalance in those immune cells that you just talked about? Yes. Yeah. You can use how you feel and any other conditions you have to figure out what your, it's called a polarization, just meaning what, what your body is, is tilting towards, Mm. you know, immune, nothing's ever, you know, a plus B equals C in immunology. But in this case, if, if you do have, you know, glaring symptoms like that or issues with those things that I mentioned, so let's say you're someone who has chronic urinary tract infections, that is a body cavity. So that would indicate a TH2 polarization. And like I said, anything in the gut is going to drive autoimmunity, the lungs, the sinuses, allergies, asthma. Yes, you can use all those as indicators or early indicators, predictive mm. indicators of driving TH17 and then driving autoimmunity. And then the the compromised TH1 status, again, is going to make you more prone to infections. So like I mentioned uh, getting sick all the time or having some kind of uh, chronic infection indicates a compromised 
TH1 status. So yes, you can use use those as indicators. I, th- I think that's really handy. I think that's super handy. Maybe you know a little bit of a proxy to start paying attention more. I do hear frequently, kind of with people, kind of gloating about the fact that they never get sick. Is that mm-hmm. something that is indicative either way of a malfunctioning or confused immune system? Right. So if if the people who never get sick, those are people who have a very robust TH1 response. And so they're usually not going to have as many issues with TH2 issues, although that can happen. Uh, But someone who who never gets sick, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It it really depends. Um, If they have autoimmunity, then it gives you clues as to how you would approach that individual. Uh, but what that means is that they have a good TH1 response. They get an infection in the body. Their immune system is able to metabolize that infection and move on. And so that, that can be a, a sign of a good thing in a lot of people. But if someone has, say, a, a rheumatoid arthritis and they appear to be more, more uh, TH1 dominant, meaning that they have a lot of inflammation in the joints, a lot of pain and stiffness, inflammation there, then that would be a case where you would not want to necessarily improve their TH1 status as one example. Okay, good to know. That's super helpful to know. And since you brought up infections, this might be a perfect point to segue into the infection autoimmune connection because my understanding of it, and I've written about this as well, is that it's really a chicken egg scenario, right? Sometimes infections can in fact trigger autoimmunity like a reactivated Epstein-Barr virus um, and chronic Lyme co-infections and and so Mm -hmm. forth. But when our immune system is malfunctioning or in this state of confusion, it's easier for for infections to hop on board in an opportunistic kind of way, right? Mm -hmm. So, So we see both of these. Maybe you can Take me in whatever direction you want to go in terms of the infection autoimmune connection. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So the the infection connection with autoimmunity, there is a lot of uh, technicality there, but I can I can explain it in a relatively simple way. And so basically, let's say you get an, an infection. And let's just say it's a virus and it gets into the thyroid gland. Let's just say it's Epstein-Barr virus or herpes 6 virus. So we have a a pretty good understanding of now of of how that drives autoimmunity. So basically, the virus is there in the gland. The immune system knows it's there. So it's sending immune cells to deal with that infection. Now, the infection is going to cause, this this could be bacteria as well, it's going to cause debris because it's causing inflammation and it's causing damage in that area. So your immune system goes there and its cells start to metabolize the virus, the bacteria, whatever infection it is, but there's debris in that area. And so these immune cells, they pick up the tissue debris and they pick up pieces of the infection. So they have both. And normally your immune system says, okay, 
I have some of my own tissue here, some debris of my own tissue, and I'm going to tag that as being safe. I don't want to attack my own tissue. And then other immune cells have debris from the infectious agent, the bacteria or the virus. And the immune system should say, okay, I don't know what this is. It's not me. I'm going to tag it. I'm going to make antibodies against it and let's get rid of it. Unfortunately, sometimes that doesn't always work the way that it's supposed to. So the presentation of your own tissue and the debris of the infection, sometimes it gets mixed up by the immune system. And so the immune system will, will make immune cells and tag self-tissue and what's called an antigen, which would be the infection. It's going to tag that as well. And so it's going to be attacking the self-tissue and the infection as well at the same time in the same area. So that's kind of the best, you know, simplest way to explain the infection connection and how it can trigger and also continually drive autoimmunity. So for example, if you have a, a chronic infection in a particular area, the immune system is obviously going to continue to monitor that and go after it. And no matter where it is in the body, that particular part of the body, there's going to be antibodies against that organ or that tissue. And there's going to be inflammation there in that area, no matter what it is. So like if it's lupus, it could be the kidney. If it's Hashimoto's, it could be the thyroid. If it's MS, it could be the uh, myelin sheath, which surrounds the nerves no matter what it is, the immune system is, it's trying to do the right thing. It just got confused and mixed up by the infection in that area. And unfortunately, it's just trying to deal with both at the same time. And so both get damaged and potentially destroyed. Beautifully described. Thank you so much. Yeah, there are many different mechanisms of action, right? Um, and the thing that just blows me away about all of this is that at a molecular level, often our body's tissues resemble the antigen, right? Mm -hmm. In At the um, most basic level. I don't know why nature created these sequences to be the same, but I guess that's the amino acid structure when it's at its mm -hmm. most basic level. Um, so. Thank you so much for explaining that. I think that's super, super helpful um, and and really good for people to understand when we talk about why it's important to remove gluten from your diet, as an example, we know that at a molecular level, the gluten molecule resembles your thyroid tissue, mm -hmm. right? And there mm -hmm. are other simple things that people consume or infections that look very similar. And you see, what are some of the common infections that you see that have that similar protein sequence? Right. Yeah. So if we look at, I mean, let's say Hashimoto's disease, you have a gut bacteria called Yersinia enterocolitica, and the amino acid sequence of that microbe looks similar to self-tissue on the thyroid. So the immune system will, will try to deal with both of those. And you can also have a pair, even a parasite. You can have a parasite like blastocystis hominis in the gut. 
And that has been shown since it's a parasite. Parasites drive uh, a Th2 polarization, which like I mentioned before, Th2 is going to drive Th17 cells. And it's been shown in the literature that if you have blastocystis hominis, you have increases in, in Th17 cells. And then if you uh, eliminate the blastocystis hominis, it's been shown that those Th17 cells calm down and the autoimmunity gets better as one example. And then you have a whole host of viruses, Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus, herpes 6, um, hepatitis, the hepatitis viruses, especially hepatitis C. There's connections there. And then even mold and fungi, although it's not, it's a different mechanism, mold and fungi are, those are going to infect the cavities of the body. And so that's also going to drive Th2 cells. But the Th17 cells, they have a purpose. They're not a bad thing. They deal with what are called extracellular bacteria and also fungi. So that would be a bacterial infection or overgrowth in the gut or any kind of fungi or mold that's overgrowing in a body cavity, like the sinuses, the lungs, or the gut. That's also going to drive autoimmunity. And uh, just a whole host of bacteria are involved in autoimmunity, like Klebsiella and rheumatoid arthritis, uh, chlamydia, mycoplasma. Um, any of those can be potential triggers and drivers of autoimmunity. Yeah. There's a long, long list of these. Um, and I, I go through great detail in my book too, uh, in the in clear infections chapter. And this makes me think that there is a deficit, a dearth of testing or even concern that most physicians, I, I would argue, have in terms of treating or looking for infections and treating them. Because as you just said, if you treat the infection like the blasto or whatever it is, there's a potential of lowering the immune burden and mm. dampening down that TH17, in which case the body, its own immune system can get back to its job of defending mm. and protecting. And, and you bring that level of inflammation down. So I just think there's a tremendous opportunity for people to consider infections as part of the holistic treatment protocol, right? Mm -hmm. Are you oh, yeah. seeing that too? Yes, definitely. And those should be looked at. And one important thing to know though, is that in, well, in the vast majority of cases, you do want to treat the mold or the fungi, the bacteria or the parasite. Viruses are a little bit different. It's not a 100% we need to address this right away. Yes. One example, Epstein-Barr virus, for example, you, you could potentially cause an autoimmune flare in certain individuals for certain reasons if you begin to uh, treat the Epstein-Barr virus. And there's a long, detailed, you know, technical immunological explanation as to why that is. But basically, you, you can potentially increase inflammatory cytokines that drive autoimmunity if you deal with the virus right away. And so a, a gentler, more 
successful approach is more focused on the reasons why the virus is able to continue to proliferate in the body and deal with that first. And all of these um, examples that I give, usually you only need about one to two months of work doing other things before you you can go directly after something like the Epstein-Barr virus in a particular case. So it isn't like in those individuals, you never go after it. There's just a an approach that you have to take depending on the individual and their presentation that you'll want to follow before you just jump in and say, okay, let's start you know, dropping bombs and right. getting rid of these infections without doing some other things first. Yeah. Because no matter what, whether it's your immune system dealing with an infection or you're using something like antibiotics or herbal antibiotics or something like that, there's always an inflammatory component to dealing with these infections. And so the body has to be able to deal with inflammation and oxidative stress at an adequate level before you just jump in and start doing those kinds of things. I am so glad that you said that. Um, I see so many people on social media and, and others talking about how Epstein-Barr, for example, is the root of all evil and you know you just kill that and everything mm. is fine. Well, most 95% of us have Epstein-Barr to a certain degree and in, in my practice, and I, I'm sure you or I, I would imagine that you see the same thing, that it is <clears throat> more of an opportunistic viral load. I mean, that gets reactivated when the immune system is dealing with all of these other challenges, right? So I think what I heard you saying is we want to approach the holism, the, the holistic factors that are putting the body in such a state that it would be open or more of a host to these mm -hmm. other insults. Did mm -hmm. I say that right? That's exactly right. And there are, again, it's, this is such an individual thing. There are cases where Epstein-Barr virus is actually going to be beneficial that it's active for a certain period of time in a certain individual. So it isn't a a binary, you know, 100% of the time, it's always bad. And then other infections can also be helpful in certain cases and in certain individuals. H. pylori can be helpful, like an in inflammatory bowel disease. And sometimes it can be harmful, depends on the person. And then also, you know, uh, helminth therapy can be useful in some cases in certain conditions because of how that affects the TH1, TH2, and TH17 balance in the body. So, yeah, it's it's just so individualized. You have, you know, 100 people with a one particular type of autoimmune disease, and you might have, you know, 100 different approaches to each one of those individuals. Yeah, yeah. I, that's so, so well said, and... I think there are probably broad strokes that we can look at overall mm. and then customized for the individual for sure. But it seems like in general, we're becoming more infection friendly. You talked at the outset about becoming insulin resistant and how that is a main driver of autoimmunity. Are there, is that 
associated with this? We're becoming friendlier to these infections. And if so, do you believe that maybe strengthening the resistance of the host or becoming more unfriendly to these infections could possibly bring the load down? Yeah, I mean, we are definitely becoming more infection friendly, beginning with how we're born. So if you were a vaginal birth, you're going to have better resilience and a healthier gut compared to if you were a C-section. If you were breastfed uh, versus formula fed, you're going to have an advantage. And then if you, if one of the things that I see a lot of is antibiotics, the first three years of life, just a single round of antibiotics in those first three years is going to have a, and I don't like to use language like this, but I just have to state a, a scientific fact. There will be lifelong issues if you even have just a single round of antibiotics those first three years, because that's when the microbiota is really developing and taking hold and the antibiotics will disrupt that. So those, those are the big three, just to start off with right off the bat that uh, can set people up for issues. And then, as you mentioned, you know, things that are going to imbalance the immune system, like I mentioned earlier, all the things that we talked about that are going to make someone more infection friendly, stress is going to impair TH1. And so that's the initial defense mechanisms when we do get infections, it's going to be compromised just from stress and inflammation and all those things that I mentioned before that promote and drive inflammation, they all dampen that TH1 response. And then when you look at the gut, which is such a, a big factor and is, is really hammered from our, our modern society, that is also going to dampen our TH1 response and promote TH2. And so anything that's going to inflame the intestinal barrier, you mentioned earlier, gluten and uh, dairy and a lot of the other very common food allergens and food sensitivities, that's also going to make us more prone to having infections. The psychological traumas that I mentioned drive inflammation and impair the TH1 system. And so one of, one of the really important things to understand is that cortisol and adrenaline, both of those, those both promote uh, the TH2 polarization. And that takes us away from our TH1 polarization, which uh, fights infections. So chronic stress, just by definition, is going to drive us away from our ability to deal with infections, either acute or chronic. <laughs> Those are big, big factors for sure. And it sounds when you started off talking about, you know, when we're born, because there's nothing we can do about that. And here we are, you know, not having been breastfed, you know, my birth mother was 14 when she got pregnant with me. Um, I believe, and the science shows that I absorbed those stress chemicals, right? Mm -hmm. And her mm -hmm. microbiome whatever that was like. And, and so it sounds really kind of, um, I, I'm not going to use the term hopeless, but a steep hill to climb, you know, to recover from 
those early insults of maybe the courses of antibiotics that might have been necessary and life-saving at the time, or for whatever reason, people chose not to breastfeed, or there might have been an emergency situation where cesarean was necessary. So now here we are. Here we are, Mm -hmm. right? As fully baked human beings responsible for our own health and our own lives. And there's so much hope with what people can do to turn the ship around. So I'd like to focus on the hope and what, what are those things? Maybe, you know, I don't know if you have a top five list of things that you really, really strongly recommend that your Mm -hmm. patients or clients pursue to help them become less friendly as hosts to infections. Mm-hmm. Um, because in my practice, I see all the time um, parasites, chronic Lyme, mycotoxins, and yeast overgrowth. Those are probably the top four triggers that I'm seeing in this category. And, and I put mycotoxins in there, even though it's technically a toxin, they seem to go hand in hand with the yeast. So what can people do for themselves to turn the ship around, to get their immune system working in their favor? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about some some basic things that most people overlook, I think, and even even practitioners. So one thing is is don't get attached to anything that really any any practitioner says. I always tell my patients that don't get too attached to anything I say or or what any other practitioner has told you in the past. Um, Cause there's a lot of damaging language that's, that's used out there and that's been shown to have a significant impact on the psychoneuroimmunology of the patient. And so there's, you really can't separate the immune system from the brain and the nervous system. And so those really have to be, you know, working well, if you're going to have good success. So don't, you know, don't overreact. Uh, don't, don't really spend a lot of time thinking about things that you've been told in the past, uh, that could be potentially damaging to you. Cause what we believe that actually changes our immune system and, and how it actually responds to everything that, that we encounter. So that that's one of the first things I would say. And then the next thing is, and you know, some people just aren't willing to do this, but you really have to avoid the internet and uh, reading about your condition and uh, going on forums and social media groups on the surface that this seems like it would be helpful. Uh, but actually what, what we know now in the psychoneuroimmunology research is that the more you think about your ill health, the more you focus on it, the more you read about it, and the more time you spend around other people who are sick, uh, the less likely you are to get better. Mm. And so when you look at a lot of these you know, forms and things online, you'll see that there's a lot of negativity and there's a lot of misinformation and you just, people are developing a lot of false beliefs about things that they shouldn't really be, be falling into. And so I always recommend to patients to take a full, you know, internet holiday uh, from 
reading and, and focusing on their condition. So, you know, like if I, let's say I had a, a brain tumor, um, I found a neurosurgeon that I trust. I'm not going to spend, you know, hours and, and days and weeks reading about, you know, my condition or a particular surgical technique or this or that. You know, I found someone I, I trust who has the training to to do the right thing. And I'm not going to go online and start to create negative beliefs and things like that in my own mind about what I'm going to be going through. This is why guided imagery has been shown to improve post-surgical outcomes because going into it, if you if you train your brain to think that it's going to be a successful and a comfortable and, and, uh, an optimum environment and outcome, you, you actually heal faster and you have less pain and all those kinds of things. So I think a lot of people are overlooking, uh, these things because they, they might seem subtle. We can't really see them or, or measure them, but it's something that people really need to be aware of. So that would be the the first thing is just kind of clearing the brain of all of the information online. And then since, you know, stress and inflammation and the gut are really one of the top things to, to look at when you're dealing with autoimmunity is you want to establish some kind of daily routine that is going to minimize stress. So some of my top recommendations are developing some kind of meditation or, or mindfulness practice. This has been. This will lower cortisol and adrenaline, and like I just mentioned earlier, cortisol and adrenaline drive autoimmunity. And so this is something that doesn't cost anything; anyone can do it, and you don't have to do a lot. You know, twenty to thirty minutes a day, and then getting out in nature is another one that I I recommend a lot because it's free, it's easy to do. And the studies on this also show that it lowers cortisol and adrenaline. So immediately you're just starting to do incorporate things into your day that are going to improve your immune function and prevent you from having a flare. So th those are some of the big ones. You know, journaling is helpful. Uh, another one that I that I talk to people about is to look at your circle of friends, like the people you hang out with. And we know that. If you want to know a lot about someone, you look at the five people they spend the most amount of time with. So if, if, you, if you look around at your social circle and the five people you spend the most amount of time with are sick and they're always complaining or talking about how sick they are, you're not really going to escape that. It's like when the crabs try to crawl out of the crab crate, the other crabs, they never let anyone leave. They pull them back down. And so take a look at that. That can be another, you know, lifelong thing that you want to look at. You want to surround yourself with people who are the kind of person that you want to be. And so that's another thing. It doesn't cost anything, something to look at, something to think about. Again, like I said, that, that can be difficult. And, uh, you know, if you can swing it and, and you have the, have the finances, um, you know, therapy of any kind is going to be very, very helpful. We all, no matter who we are, we've all had issues as a child, as an adult stressors, you know, we could have a stressful relationship, you know, it just helps you deal with those kinds of things. It helps you deal with 
work, if that's stressful. Um, so those are some of the big ones that I would, I would recommend right off the bat. A lot of the, you know, the dietary stuff is, is fairly straightforward. You know, I, I tend to just work kind of in phases with people. So I don't have them do something too difficult right off the bat. So the really easy thing to do is just avoiding gluten, dairy, and sugar and just, just start there and don't be too hard on yourself right off the bat. You're going to start dropping inflammation. And remember, anytime your gut gets inflamed, that drives autoimmunity. So just getting rid of those is, is going to make a big difference. Uh, you mentioned the mouth taping to um, improve oxygen levels. That's a very cheap and, and easy thing to do. Now, the other thing to do is, is look at your exercise and make sure that you're not overdoing it because exercise is a stress no matter what it is. And exercise, if it's intense enough, drives cortisol and adrenaline. And so that's going to inflame you and drive you further into autoimmunity. So you really want to cut back on that if, if you need to, if, if you want to get well, because that can also be a driver of, of autoimmunity. So those are some, I would say those are some, some of the most impactful things, you know, you could do right off the bat to start shifting things in the right direction. I love it. I love it so much. I'm going to throw another one in the mix there and that's sleep. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the most underappreciated. I think everybody should have a bedtime. And mm. I, I think about this a lot. I wear an aura ring. Is that an aura ring you have on there? That measures. See, I've got my aura ring. <laughs> I, yeah. I won't give tell, give you the finger it's on. Right. Um, yeah. But but so it's it's really important to distinguish between time in bed and time asleep. Mm -hmm. And so aiming for at least eight hours of sleep, if you have an autoimmune condition, is not a luxury. I mean, I think it can be a necessity. Mm -hmm. For people to heal. I mean, this is when tissue repairs, our brain takes out the trash. Is there anything in the category of sleep that you recommend to your patients? Yeah. I mean, sleep is one of those things that I consider, uh, as my friend Andrea Nakayama calls it, a non-negotiable. Mm. This is something that we just have to stop in the beginning if if someone's not getting good sleep. They're just not going to progress uh, the way that we would like them to, if they're not sleeping really well. So some of my, my sleep tip tips, I have a whole, uh, you know, ebook on that, that I give to every patient. And the first thing is no screens after 6 PM, we want to minimize blue light. And so no phones, no tablets, no computers after 6 PM, you can wear blue light blocking glasses later in the day, usually, you know, around 4 PM, and beyond is, is a good time to start. Uh, so blue light is a big one. And then you just have to think about your hygiene going into the night. So obviously, you know, you're eating a, a healthy dinner and then think about from that point on, you want to be thinking about your parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest. So you don't want to be watching violent, you know, movies late at night or programs they're going to cause a stress response. You want to focus on pleasurable, easy things that you like, whether it's time with your family, having fun, you know, reading. It's okay to watch 
TV as long as it's something that you enjoy and it's not too stimulating. Uh, warm baths. There's you know some herbal teas that I like. Um, reishi really tends to work for a lot of people. Uh, reishi tea or just taking reishi in the evening is really one of the best things for sleep at reducing cortisol, adrenaline, and anxiety. And it's a it's a fairly safe bet for the vast majority of autoimmune diseases because it is a it is a Th1 promoter, but it also has Th2 dampening mechanisms and also an effect on Th17. So that's that's another uh, great one for sleep. There's a lot we can talk about with sleep, but those are the most important thing is just to be thinking about your sleep hygiene going into the evening and no lights in your bedroom, consistently going to bed at the same time every night, things like that. Yeah. That that's wonderful. I love that. I, I will ask a question. I didn't know how to pronounce reishi. I've been saying reishi mushrooms uh, for people who have, let's say an abundance of yeast and mycotoxins. We tend to um, have them avoid mushrooms because of the connection as a fungi um, are, is that okay for people that might have candida? And oh yeah. That's oh. if we get into the myth, the, you know, the myth category yes. question, that's something to, to not worry about. That isn't, that isn't going to drive any issues with yeast or mold. In fact, it, it'll have the opposite effect. It'll, it'll really be beneficial Something like reishi actually in, improves the body's ability to metabolize histamine and it controls mast cells. So there's, again, we can't make a, a general recommendation for every homo sapien on planet earth, <laughs> but for the majority of people they're you know, they'll be fine with something like that. Great. Great. Well, you hit you absolutely teed yourself up when you said busting myths. So give me three mm -hmm. myths and, and that can be one of them because I, I just thought, okay. and I follow mold experts and functional people who say, you know, get rid of the vinegar and anything with yeast or that could be contributing. Um, but please bust that one. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, I would say another myth would be a vite that, uh, vitamin D is always good for everyone. And that's, that is true in the long run, but it may not be true for the first one to two months of working with an individual. There are certain cases, depending on what's going on with the individual and their immune system, where vitamin D can actually exacerbate things and actually increase fibrosis. And so if you have any kind of autoimmune condition that has fibrotic tissue or scarring or anything like that, you, you don't want to promote to what we call tolerance right away. And so in those types of cases, you want to support the TH1 system first, uh, something as simple as glutathione or N-acetylcysteine for the first month or two uh, to cause a shift in the immune system and and prevent any negative effects of the vitamin D. Uh, that's, that's another one. So I think a lot of people just start popping vitamin D right away, or a lot of practitioners recommend it immediately. But again, we can't make general 
recommendations for everyone. We have to look deeply into each case. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of a, a third myth that could be could be good. I mean, we talked about how it, it might not be a good idea to treat you know Epstein Barr virus right away. Again, you know, we talked about that. Um, or that Epstein Barr yeah. is the root of all evil, which right. I yeah. think that there are you know many people out there that think that if you just kill the Epstein Barr, everything is going to be mm-hmm. wonderful again. Yeah, and another another myth that's kind of an all encompassing myth would be uh, genetics. Hmm. This is one of the I just I just have to talk about this because I have a few colleagues who we're passionate about kind of trying to reform functional medicine because uh, right now the education is dominated by the labs and the supplement companies and genetics and genetic testing and that whole arm of functional medicine is not scientifically sound at this point. And it's used in a damaging way. This is what I talked about earlier about developing false beliefs and practitioners telling running genetic tests and telling patients that they have this uh, genetic problem and that they'll always have it or that they have to take this supplement to deal with this genetic issue. One of the big ones being MTHFR, Mm -hmm. which is just so, so overblown. We could do, you know, a whole podcast just on that. Mm -hmm. Don't get attached to these, uh, gene testing or genetics or feeling like you have to take a supplement to deal with a particular uh, genetic SNP. Um, This is something that is just really good marketing by labs that promote genetic testing, but it is not a scientifically sound arm of functional medicine, even though you'll see it everywhere. A lot of practitioners are doing it just just be aware of that and don't get too attached to it. Thank you so much for shining a light on that because I wasn't really even aware of how much of this is driven by marketing and, and not science. And I think that speaks mm-hmm. beautifully to the necessity to be your own best advocate, do your research, do your own homework and trust your intuition, trust your intuition and you know, to whether or not you take something in, just chew on what Dr. Hedberg is saying. Does that make sense to you? Does it resonate? You have to be the arbiter of information. So please, please, please. This is just fantastic information from someone who's been at this a long time. I mean, you've been, I don't know how long you've been practicing functional medicine, but I- 17 years. 17 years. Okay. So this is an expert who's been practicing in the trenches functional medicine for 17 years, what you develop is a pattern recognition where you see things time and time again. And it's, it's a really interesting perch to be on to see all of these things that are coming out that, you know, may not even be true. So Mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate the voice that you're giving this and the fact that you have a podcast and you're so passionate about educating people. And I think you've provided so much great information here. Is there anything in particular you feel like you want to say that you haven't had a chance to address? 
I mean, I think, uh, you know, we've done a pretty good job of, of giving a nice overview to everything. I'll just, I'll just mention again that, uh, you know, functional medicine unfortunately became something that there was just, you know, too much testing is, is promoted and, and done and, and too many supplements. And, uh, you know, you want to find a, a practitioner who is practicing real functional medicine, which is really finding out a lot about the person and the individual and their life and their life life story, not how many tests can I run and, you know, how many supplements can, can you give someone? Cause that's not functional medicine. That's not what it was meant to be. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, it was hijacked like so many things. So, and the other thing I would say is that, you know, there are many, many ways to get better and, and improve your condition. And uh, don't, like I said, don't get too attached to any one individual. Don't get attached to anything I've said. And um, do the best you can to find, you know, a, a practitioner who you trust and uh, has your best interest, you know, at heart. So that's what I would say. Beautiful, beautiful. And as you were talking, it made me think of, you know, one component that I, when I did some training with the Institute for Functional Medicine, I was in the immune dysfunction module and stress was not mentioned. And mm -hmm. this was years ago. So I'm sure they have updated and evolved that, but I felt like it was a, the elephant in the room that was missing was not to talk about stress. And, and so when looking to work with somebody to make sure that they are advocating self-care and ways to get out of that always on, right? Stress mm -hmm. response, stress reaction is what it actually is and into the rest and digest so that a healing program should in be mind, body, spirit or whatever words you want to use, but it should be holistic in that regard. That is one thing that I just wanted to make sure because mm -hmm. I, I know you touch on this and speak about it a lot so don't overlook that as part of mm -hmm. your, uh, whatever you choose to improve your health. Yeah. Well said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this has just been an honor to speak with you directly. I'm so glad that you've made this time. I, I think that you have delivered so much wisdom and so much value to people. It's just been a pleasure talking with you, Dr. Hedberg. And I already look forward to the next time. Yeah. Well, thanks, Palmer. I really enjoyed this and uh, appreciate all the work that you're doing out there. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we're on the team, my friend. You take great care and I'll look forward to talking with you the next time. All right. You as well. All right. Bye for now. Bye. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, share it with your friends and family. And if you feel inspired, please leave a quick review so other people can find it too. Now, if you want to beat autoimmune and thrive, make sure you sign up for my free video training at freeautoimmunetraining.com. That's freeautoimmunetraining.com and watch the first video right away. Take good care. Bye for now.